The epistle for this morning is written in uh, the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I hurt you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and yet not killed, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Here ends the epistle. The Gospel is written in St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we pray that at this moment you will open our minds so that we may understand what you have to say to us, that you open our hearts, that it may touch us in the center of our lives, and that you may bend our wills so that we are ready to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
I would guess that most of us come from traditions where we mostly let the, read the Bible in short bits, at least that's how I was raised and what I do most of the time. I read one or a couple of pieces, parts of scripture every day, uh, often even small bits with some explanation with, uh, from a meditative book. One of the downsides of that is that we hardly ever read Bible books as a whole in one sitting, say, and get a feel of what a book is about. It would be a good exercise to do that with um, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, to get a feeling of the flow of this book. And if you do that, you would see that the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians is dealing almost entirely with one issue. It's the issue that Paul is engaged in some sort of conflict with what he calls false apostles or super apostles. The 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians are all addressing these issues, actually with the exception of two other chapters, chapter 8 and 9, that are really important for, a church, for our church now. They are about giving, giving to the church, giving to the work of God. But all the other chapters are about Paul's conflict with these great apostles that have come after him in the church in Corinth and have been showing how great they are in proclaiming the gospel. They, are, they have great rhetoric skills, they have great experience, and they boast in who they are. And, and Paul is confronted with that and, and, and tries to answer that. And that makes that um, the second epistle to the Corinthians is a bit different from other epistles, and mainly because Paul talks so much about himself. And I should say uh, that, that sometimes um, irritates me even a bit in this letter, someone talking so much about himself. Um, I think that in this respect, the English and the Dutch are a bit similar. We, we're, we're taught not to talk about ourselves and definitely not about how we're doing, isn't it? Um, we, 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 we talk about others, but not about how good we are doing. At the same time, it's also a very personal letter. It's a part of the Paul's epistles where he talks most profoundly about himself, his own experience, and we find some of the most intense personal parts. This is this epistle where we find the idea that Paul says, our gospel is hidden as a treasure in a jar of clay. Um, it's this epistle that has this very tender text that talks about Paul's weakness, his thorn in the flesh, and yet the grace of God being visible in his weakness, and that is provoked by his desire to talk about himself, to recommend himself. Recommending himself is actually a theme of the sixth chapter, and it's a theme that he picks up from earlier on. In a couple of places, he actually says, I am not recommending myself. These super apostles, these great people, they recommend themselves. They talk about themselves. But I, I'd rather talk about Christ. I'd rather talk about the gospel. Yet, this is one of the places where he feels, I need to recommend myself. I need to talk about myself. Later on, he will even say, I will recommend myself for once, even if it's foolish. Then, if you want me to recommend myself, if you want me to compare myself with these super apostles, I'll do it, and I'll be a fool for a while. Yeah? And he does so. He, he talks about himself. It's very difficult to do that in a good way. 
because attention so easily is drawn to himself. And it, it, it's an issue we recognize. It's an issue we recognize in our own life. It's an issue we recognize in our own Christian life. How, how do we show people how Christ becomes visible in our lives? How something of the glory of Christ even shines through in who we are? How do we do that in not drawing too much attention about to ourselves in not being less humble than we should be. The whole issue of how to be visible to others as followers of Christ and being humble, of course, is a difficult one. I find being humble itself is a difficult one, isn't it? How, how are you truly humble? C.S. Lewis says very perceptively somewhere, it is really difficult to be truly humble because I myself, the moment I... I I manage to be humble, I'm getting proud because of being humble. And the moment I discover that I'm so wise that I can even recognize that I'm proud about being humble, I'm humble because of my pride again, but I'm proud because of my ability to recognize it. And he says, it's, it's an infinite regression. Every moment I realize my humility, I'm proud because of my humility. How do you do that? And actually, in, in true life, I, I find the most humble people, those who no longer need to be bothered about being humble because they, they're not so concerned about themselves, not even about their own pride or their own humility because they're only concerned about Christ and the glory of God. So here Paul says, I need to talk about myself. I need to recommend my ministry. And he does that in this beautiful passage, which is actually quite a poetic passage in which he has a whole list of terms, or actually three lists of terms that he uses to talk about himself. There are first <coughs> nine of ten, and, and if I say nine or ten, it, it's not because I can't count, but because it's very hard to split up the passages exactly. There, the first nine or ten words in which he talks about the hardships of his ministry, the hardships which he experienced from outside, beatings, the hardships which he also accepted himself voluntarily, sleepless nights, hunger, because of his investment in his ministry. That's the first bit. Secondly, there are eight, nine terms that talk about his character, his purity, understanding, patience, kindness, his Holy Spirit. I guess, actually, this is not talking about the Holy Spirit, but his Holy Spirit, his sincere love, his truthful speech. He points to his character. Those are two main characteristics, isn't it? What he undergoes, what he experiences for the gospel, and his character. And that those things actually show, of course, why he should use words to recommend himself very sparsely and why we should use words to recommend ourselves very sparsely. Because these things can only show themselves in reality. A character, you, you, you cannot describe your character indeed. You cannot raise your character by talking a lot about yourself. You can only show your character by having one, by developing one, by indeed showing true sincerity in what you do purity of heart, willingness to suffer for Christ. 
And Denima moves on to another set of terms, the third group here, a third, and in this third group, we see contrasts, we see paradoxes. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, it's probably something like recognized by people, the, 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 the authority of Paul, the ministry of Paul is recognized by people, yet unrecognized, dying yet we live unbeaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Again, a group of nine contrasts, nine paradoxes, a paradox that is very characteristics of the ministry of Paul, very characteristic of the ministry of Jesus, very characteristic of the life of every Christian. It is, if, if Paul wants to show his power, the only way he can truly show his power is in his weakness. Because as I referred already to this other, other passage, is because Paul and his ministry are nothing more than a jar of clay that the treasure of the gospel becomes apparent. It's because as a Christian we cannot save ourselves as the disciples in this other reading. The disciples who could not save themselves, who were, who, who, who were, who were at the mercy of the waves. It is because of that that the presence and the power of Christ becomes visible. It is in the foolishness of the message of the gospel, Paul says elsewhere, that the wisdom of Christ becomes visible. That's a paradox that's essential to the Christian life, a, pa a paradox that is necessary because the gospel is rejected and not being easily understood, a paradox that is a reality because of sin, which makes that the gospel and Christ are always at loggerheads with what we see around. Yet it is in this paradox that the glory of the gospel becomes apparent. And that's a paradox that we are going to celebrate, isn't it? A paradox that we're going to celebrate when we celebrate communion together. Because we are breaking bread. We are drinking wine as symbols of the death of Christ, the death of our Lord, the self-sacrifice of our Lord. And yet, in that, we celebrate life, the life we received through Him. We share signs of defeat, yet we celebrate victory. When we celebrate communion, there's always an element of sorrow, a realism about the sacrifice that Christ gave, a realism about the hardships of the Christian life. Yet when we celebrate, we rejoice. And when we receive, when we come there with open hands, we know that as Paul says, we have nothing. We have nothing of our own. But because we receive, we receive our bit in the life of Christ, the life of the Lord of the universe. We possess everything. I don't need to have anything if everything is mine. Amen.